The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight, as I mentioned, will serve both as a introduction to the course and the five hindrances and going more in depth with the first hindrance of sense desire. And uh, hopefully we'll have a little time at the end for questions or comments. Learn how to do that in our two-world system with those of you on Zoom and those here in the room. And, you know, it's probably good to understand that the Buddha talks about our practice in different ways, but it's really useful just to think of the hindrances, like what gets in the way of that settling, that clarity that comes when the mind is stable, stably present with the conditions. Why is that so hard? And then we're turning that into a study. And you know, you may somehow feel like dividing those hindrances into five categories is not correct, and you think it should be in three categories or whatever, but you know, you might find that you can fit everything in the five categories. It doesn't mean it's absolutely the perfect breakdown, it just means maybe it's good enough. Because it's just a map to help us see. It's just like the line between North Dakota and Minnesota, it's arbitrary. You know, so some of the distinctions between those hindering forces in the mind might be arbitrary, but it isn't about being absolutely, that the map being absolutely correct. What's important is using the map to be intimate, more and more intimate with the conditions as they are, in a way that leads to the mind dropping what's extra what doesn't actually align with the way it is. And there's a, let me just read from a chapter in Joseph Goldstein's book about uh, desire. This is from his book, Insight Meditation. It's a great book, written maybe, maybe now 25 years ago. And he just has different topics, including the topic of desire. And he writes that grasping force of tanha, which usually gets translated as craving, runs very deep in our consciousness. In fact, the Buddha said that this kind of desire or craving is the driving force of samsara, the entire round of existence. So in a way, you know, we think superficially that, well, because I'm here, I have desire. But actually, in Buddhist cosmology, this world exists because of craving. And this sort of mind, body, this person, this predicament, my situation, it arises because of the force of craving. And craving, technically, is just desire with ignorance. 
desire without understanding what it is. Because desire is just the animating force of life. It's kind of like what's moving moves because of desire. You know, we don't say the wind desires to blow from the north or whatever direction it's blowing right now. You know, it's like, oh, come on, Mark. That's the natural phenomena. There's no desire because we always uh, associate like a personal agent with desire. But how about if we think of desire as just any movement? Like the leaves desire, or the trees rather desire to drop their leaves in the fall? You know, or do I desire to put food in my mouth? Or is that just a natural movement? So that's just a way like to create a more, uh, to create more interest as we begin to study the force of desire and how desire, that force, that movement, that just comes with being alive, how it gets entangled with attachment or with a sense of self, a sense of me, a sense of promise, like if, then. <laughs> you know, that somebody. And what's that force without that? Because all we're doing is looking at that movement with different eyes, with a different point of view from the habitual point of view. Like, again, using that example of weather, you know, as if there were some consciousness that even could be ours. You know, like they, they've done, you know, in human history, they've personalized, it's very common in human culture to personalize natural forces, right? That is the different nature spirits or the Greek gods or the whatever, throwing lightning bolts or whatever they might do. So now we're doing the opposite. Instead of personalizing everything, we're depersonalizing everything. And especially this force that we have a very strong habit of personalizing the force of desire, the movement of desire. Let me just read some more from this. Observe carefully what happens in your mind, to your mind, when it becomes entranced in the forest of desire. It's like being lost in an enchanted maze or wrapped in a delusive dream world. We weave many thoughts and fantasies around the experience we either are having or want to have, and we bind ourselves in the chains of attachment. And that's the interesting thing we'll be able to observe over and over again in our meditations and in our daily life. The first moments of desire seem very innocent because it really is being experienced and felt as a, just a natural movement. You know, it's just a natural movement of attraction. We think about ice cream or we see something or we hear something. You know, you heard the jets during the meditation, maybe some of you, and you thought about traveling somewhere, you know? And at first it's just a, oh yeah. But then it starts, the entanglement begins, right? 
And this is the thing about desire that we'll get to learn is um, how complex, how complicating it gets. See, once we have taken the bait and there's a sense of a somebody liking the promise of desire, then there's also a somebody who doesn't want the promise of that desire to go away, to end, to cease, because it's a betrayal. And that's true whether I gratify the desire or not. Like if I start, you know, it's just an innocent sound of a jet, and it triggers a thought of flying somewhere, oh yeah, I could go visit my friend in the Bay Area or something like that. Oh, I always have so much fun. And then we think about, well, how can I carve that time away from work? And how will I pay for it? And what will I do when I'm there? Oh yeah, my friend has this other friend and I really don't like that friend. Would it be wrong of me to say when I come to visit that we not spend time with that other person? You see, and then it, oh, but what happens if I get COVID? Should I wear a mask in the plane? And the whole thing gets, and the thing is we don't want to put it down like, oh, just forget about it. Because that hope, that promise, ah, see my friend in San Francisco, right? That feels real. And to just drop the desiring is a kind of betrayal. I remember Sharon Salzberg a long time ago saying, she noticed once when she was hiking in the Sierra Mountains, I think, with some friends, that the beginning part of the hike was there was just a lot of downhill. And then eventually, somewhere in the middle of the day-long hike, the thought occurred to her, in a dualistic world, when you go down, 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 then you got to go up, 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 up. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, the pleasure of the day of hiking changed, right? Because you realize, and it's the same thing with desiring. When the, with attachment, you know, the craving, when the mind takes the bait and gets entangled with the hope, the promise of desire that somebody's going to get something, because that's a manufactured high. And even if we get that desire gratified, if we actually fly to San Francisco, we eat what we want to eat, or we get the massage we want, the betrayal will come when there's attachment to desire, because whatever that desire is, it's going to go away. Either we gratify it and it goes away, or it gets just too heavy to keep wanting it and we drop it. But one way or another, we're going to be disappointed when, the, when it ends. And it's a little bit like that story. I know it seems a little maybe obscure, that idea that, you know, when there's down, there's up. But that's what happens with attachment to desire. And this is what we can observe all week long. Because next week we'll be moving on to aversion. But there's some basic principles in learning about desire that will be helpful for our study of anything that hinders, anything that disturbs the mind, breaks up the continuity of awareness, takes the mind away from a sense of dispassion and contentment and peace. Peace with 
conditions. And just that, and it's the same thing like with aversion when you, you know, it's like, it's really the same principle. It's like, oh, this scares me, or I want this pain to go away. You know, and it's like, uh, there's this idea that I'll be, when we get away from it, that I'll be safe. And it's such a betrayal when we realize it's never over. There, we're never ever done with threats and insults and unpleasantness. So that promise, oh, that would feel so good, yeah, but it doesn't really change things. And that's what we want to observe, is how it's almost like an addiction to the intensity of desiring more than the objects we desire. There's something juicy and enlivening about the promise, the potential, the possibilities. And we don't really know what to do with, I remember Ajahn Sumedho writing or saying once, um, you know, Buddhist practitioners, people generally, and, and Buddhist practitioners, they really like the idea of peace, but not so much the experience initially. Right? It's like, you know, we feel so put upon in life, so pushed around by our desires and our fears. And so what we're trying to do is cultivate a taste for a heart that isn't entranced by pleasure and isn't overwhelmed by pain. And it doesn't mean that we're oblivious and we don't move away when it's too hot because it's painful or consume something because it's available and it's pleasant and, and helpful to eat it or to have it. It just means, like, you can use this next time you get your Amazon package, <laughs> whatever it is. You know, you go buy something that you want. You know, just notice the tendency to want to indulge in that pleasure of gratification. And just look for other ways to deal with the experience of having the package arrive. Oh, it's good that it got here. It's good that no one stole it. <laughs> you know, it will, hopefully it will be useful, worth the effort it took to earn the money or whatever to be able to afford it. But wouldn't it be helpful to tag on, but in the great scheme of things, it's not really a cause for deeper happiness, having or not having this. Because if I do think that my deeper happiness, what the happiness I really care about, is dependent on this, you see what a setup that is. Then I gotta guard it. <laughs> you know, it's like, and it's almost like we wanna, you know, I don't know, People of my generation remember watching the movie when it came out. What was it called? Uh, Maud or when the young man falls in love with the older woman? Harold and Maud, thanks, Tim. <laughs> came out maybe in the early 70s. And uh, there's a great scene. So it's a younger man falls in love with an older woman and gives her, I think, an engagement ring, as I remember it at least. And she's so touched and moved looks at it, maybe even tries it on, I forget, and then she takes it and throws it in the lake. 
<laughs> it says, well, now I always know where it is. And that's, that's the kind of thing like, uh, you know, to get what comes our way that's appropriate to receive, a nice meal, a good time with a friend, a beautiful day of weather like we had today, to really let it land, totally, it's like we're, we're not, we're totally into being intimate, present with it, but not the sticky stuff, not the, any dependence. It's really nice that the conditions are pleasant right now, but I'm choosing not to be dependent on my good fortune of having a nice day of weather, having a nice place to live, having good health. I'm not, I'm not going as far as dependence. So what does it mean to be in a world where there is sense gratification, hopefully, you know, if you're fortunate and you have some nice experiences during the next week, and really explore, like, what is it like to really let it in, to really be there, but to be on the lookout for any sense of dependence, fear of it not being there, fear of it going away, fear of it ending. So that's one kind of training mechanism. Another is like strategically uh, notice some desires and on purpose don't gratify them. I mean, just no, not that anybody would do this, but why not? It would be actually pretty simple to do it and it would be a really good learning, you know, because no, no one is going to probably die if you skip a lunch or skip a dinner or skip breakfast. So skip a meal, meal, consider this, or anything, right? You could just substitute something else if you don't want to do something as dramatic as skipping a meal, skip dessert, or something like that. Or whatever little sense treat that you generally give yourself. And know you're going to skip it. And like, notice the anticipation, notice the anticipation, see the desire, Build, see all the different ways the mind convinces you that this is silly. You get what it's like, desire, you know, but you know, you can do it tomorrow. Tomorrow would be a better day to do it. And it, you just see so many, and then there, and it can get really strong, like the force of no, no, we're going to just eat. And, uh, but you want to really refrain because you want to see that the desiring ceases without gratification. Right? Because there are a lot of things we really wanted in our life that we couldn't gratify. Is that true? So where did, where's that desiring now? Those things, that person we wanted to love us or that car that we wanted to buy or that trip we wanted to take that body we wanted to have. <laughs> it's interesting, I'm in my mid-60s and you know, ju there's just a lot of things that <clears throat> were possibilities that I do in my life that are less likely, right? You know, you just, options begin to, to diminish. Well, I probably won't take that trip, probably won't do this with my life. <laughs> you know, not too many moves left in terms of career. And, uh, and just to sort of see that like, the absence of that desire. And it has kind of a coolness 
because and it's a little can even be a little unnerving because it sort of begs the question well maybe that's true with all desires they're just a lot of bluff a lot of color ornate seductive in that sort of superficial sense but really nothing behind it and that's what we want to start to see with our desires like really and you you only we only see that when we don't suppress them we're interested in them you could even you know just be playful like pull out a catalog okay you know something a catalog that is of interest to you or go to Zillow which I do sometimes you know and search for cabins around Lake Superior <laughs> you know and it's it's just so interesting to see the bloom you know and it's sort of like how many you know some there're generally 20 photographs per home per cabin something like that's probably average and it's like how many facts and photographs before the mind can't concoct can't really hold up the one who wants anymore and the whole thing kind of implodes and even now when i go to the zillow site i notice this sort of uh an under a uh, kind of underneath there's this like uh you know the the simile from the buddhist text uh from the time of the buddhas the simile the buddha used was that dog being thrown a bunch of bones by a really skilled butcher who was able to take every little last bit of meat off of the bones and as the story goes from the suttas there's just a little blood smeared on the bones that's all that's left so the dog is seduced thinking food but it's just bone you know and uh and eventually the dog realizes there's not really anything here for me and that's a little bit like these places of desiring in our lives it doesn't even mean that we won't buy a cabin on lake superior or get married or go get a treat from our refrigerator or whatever it just means we're it's just too heavy to imagine that it's more than what it is it's just going to be a cup of green tea it's just going to be eating those leftovers it's just going to be a cab and you have to drive 3 and 1/2 hours to if you're lucky <laughs> if not longer you know and we'll have to constantly repair <laughs> you know it's just what it is and it doesn't mean it won't even be nice i have someone i've been seeing for probably almost 25 years now a uh, shiatsu practitioner who i think is great and unfortunately he's moving in a few months and almost every month for most of the last 20 or 25 years i've seen this person and it's just interesting now you know it's it's a nice experience i always feel better we have a really nice relationship but it's it's like i gone you know from the place of oh three more days and then I'll have that and it will fix me you know to I've gone through the other end so many times now that I don't believe any of those stories I tell myself 
yeah, it will be a nice experience, and then it will be over, and I'll feel kind of worn out for the rest of the day, and it probably does some good, but it's never removed suffering in my life. It hasn't changed the game, right? Same thing with all the nice meals we've had. Has it changed the game? Or the nice hugs? Or the nice times with a friend? <clears throat> Doesn't mean we have to stop having a nice massage or a nice meal or a nice time with a friend, but we want to start teasing out that promise, that story, the dependence, the story that comes with a dependence. There's somebody who is seemingly dependent on needing and having and getting and consuming this. And there will be somebody who will feel betrayed and harmed by not getting it. We don't have to do that piece. So that's the exploration this week with desire, is just to get interested. And to get interested in the whole build-up, like when you're gonna, when the mind is seduced and it is going through that whole process of building up the sense of the me, who's gonna be delighted and changed by getting what I want to have, then notice how your mind does it. Like how does it construct that very convincing promise, if you get this, you're going to be substantially, there will be a you who will be substantially affected in a positive way by getting it. It will matter. You know, so you're, it's appropriate for you to be dependent so that if you don't get it, you should be disappointed. You will be harmed. You will be lesser by not having this. That's the, lie, basically, that we can conquer. So then, when that's happening, get interested in how the mind is doing it, because <clears throat> that's how we undermine the process, isn't by trying to stop the process, but by really getting to know it. Like, how does the mind tell the lie? And you don't even have to say it that way, because, you know, that could be a way of being averse to desiring, to kind of call it a lie. But how is the mind doing the desiring? Like, what is the mind paying attention to? What information, what image does the mind keep bringing to mind? <clears throat> like when you're around somebody who's attractive to you, what do you keep bringing to mind about that person? What do you want to look at or what do you want to remember? What do you imagine? Because when we're spinning the construction of craving, of wanting, of the promise, then it, it's an actual real-time construction. The mind is constructing some meaning that spellbounds the mind. It's like we dress something up and then we kind of believe the, the mirage or the uh, one teacher describes this in terms of a theater company that's just got a bunch of props in the back, and this little stool could serve as so many different items, you know, in, in theater you could kind of make things work, you know, a little makeup, a little stagecraft, and you could create a medieval, you know, castle, or you could create a futuristic this or that, 
you just got a bunch of plywood and little this and that's and magic, right? And especially these days with graphics, you know, digital, you can make anything. And this is the thing about the desiring. It's this production studio where we, the mind, builds something so compelling. Even awakening, nibbana, nirvana, right? Oh, if only I get my act together as a Buddhist practitioner, then I'll be free. So that becoming energy, that's part of that, that craving. So you want to get to know, in a way we're deconstructing the stagecraft of craving, desiring. Not out of aversion, but just because we want to get to know things as they are. Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, right? We just want to see it. And if it falls apart, it's not because we're trying to make it fall apart, because that's aversion. So it is nice when the whole thing pops, you know, where we've been wrapped up, whether it's like wanting this person to love us or wanting to get this promotion or wanting to change my life in this way, self-help way. And then the whole thing falls apart and we just, it's like such a relief. Oh, you know, I mean, in some ways, initially we're betrayed and then it's like, because it's like that being the person who was dependent on something, getting something, becoming somebody, it's such a weight, even with awakening. And there's a difference between aspiration and this craving like sensing what's possible and really like uh, that sense of what's possible really helps us be intimate with the here and now. It kind of guides us along the way. So that's another thing to tease out because if we misunderstand the teachings on sense desire, it, it, there really is the shadow of being against sense experience. Okay, so the answer is not to see, not to taste, not to smell, not to touch, not to hear, and not to think about any of that stuff. Then I'll be free, right? And that doesn't make sense, because it's just a version to our karmic situation of being a sensitive living human being. We don't really have any choice but to explore what freedom looks like when there is this life animated by desire. To breathe, to move, to connect, to belong, to eat, to sleep, to be away from danger. We don't need to pathologize these desires. We just have to learn how to live with them, not making them more than what they are, and not trying to make them less than what they are. And that's why we're going to study them all week long. There's a quote I'd like to read from uh, Sylvia Borstein, because it just really cuts right to the point here, the couple of quotes here. One is, desire pulls so hard 
it's surprising to find that it's empty. And that's where you want to have enough stability, enough interest, so you can really observe desire. And that real, actual tug. Like sometimes, I, I talk about this sometimes, you know, and I had my chocolate today. Sometimes, you know, I'll go out of the way to get chocolate. And it's just like really interesting to study the tug the whole way. This is, you know, what is this? What is this force? You know, even as you're walking into the store, and even as you're unwrapping it, even as you're eating it, what is this? And to just see the, kind of the falseness, the, the magic of our desires. And like I said earlier, really be on the lookout that it's less about the experience. I mean, I really realize this about chocolate. Chocolate's not actually that tasty. I mean, sugar is sugar. And, and, you know, milky creaminess is milky creaminess. But chocolate, you know, it's, it's something. <laughs> and we start to get that's true with about every sense desire. And you know what really, um, maybe Shelley will cover this, or I'll cover it in one of the later weeks, but there's that really important discourse where the Buddha talks about the second dart. And I won't go through the whole thing because we only have a few minutes left, but the point I want to make here is that getting a sense pleasure seems big because we haven't learned what to do with unpleasantness. So we get desperate for a little break from a lot of the unpleasantness of life when we have a little sense pleasure. So little sense pleasure is like getting some chocolate or watching a funny TV show or whatever else that you can um, connect with in your life that's pleasant to you. It's like all of a sudden it becomes this huge thing because I feel so oppressed by the aches in my body or by my job that I hate or by this relationship that I'm in that doesn't feel so healthy. So then I'm totally desperate to get a little high for my beer or my wine or for my TV show or for my whatever, you know, pornography or whatever we use to give the mind a little hit of pleasantness. Ah, and then we have a temporary break but we always have to go back. And it's, it's like that's that equal and opposite. It's not only do we go back, but there's that, that betrayal. Oh, the pleasantness really didn't fix it. So we get more desperate for pleasantness. And this is what we start to unpack, this whole addiction that this is what's behind so much of our conditioning and dependence on pleasantness is that we haven't figured out how to be a human being in a world where there's unavoidable unpleasantness. There's the pain of loss, there's the pain of insecurity, that just the uh, unreliableness and insecurity of everything, let alone the aches and pains of the aging body and sickness and getting splinters and 
smelling unpleasant smells and, you know, just the ordinary things that come with life that are unavoidable. So I'll finish with this last quote from Sylvia Borstein. I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of the desire. So the struggle to get what I desire, that's what she's talking about. That pain to be dependent on what I want, to be dependent on what I find pleasant, is more painful than the pain of just feeling the ache of desire. And she goes on, if I develop the habit of refraining myself, I'll enjoy the relief of feeling desires pass, and I'll remember that desires are not the problem. Feeling pushed around by them is. So suffering is being pushed around by desire. Suffering is not being a human being with desires. If only I weren't a sexual being. If only I didn't have taste buds. If only I didn't know the difference between a pleasant visual experience and an unpleasant you know. No. If only I would if, if only I could find a way not to be pushed around by my desires. And we've got this week and the rest of our lives to explore life. Okay, I'm a desiring human being. That would be a nice way to wake up tomorrow morning, you know, taking the class. Okay, I'm a desiring human being. I'm going to fully own that. I'm not going to be afraid of that. I'm not going to pretend that it, it ain't so. How to be a desiring human being without being pushed around by the desiring, confused by it imagining that the desiring is more than what it is. And the last sentence here. I'll continue to have desires, of course, because I'm alive, but they'll be more modest in their demands. (laughs) may May it be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.